Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News. Uh, thank you for joining us today. And I wish you all a good day wherever you are uh, on this uh, fine planet, the third one from the sun. I hope that your day has been uh, great and that you're well. Um, I want to let you know that our advertised topic is uh, different. We've had to reschedule the presentation with Dr. Tamara Wexler uh, to a later date. So this uh, uh, episode of our radio show will focus on I guess some more of my musings and ramblings based on the actual practice of medicine and the things that we encounter. I want to start by saying that uh, last week we had a really great show uh, with Dr. Aldisuki uh, uh, from Michigan State, uh, where we talked about the effects of biotin on uh, different laboratory function tests. And if you're just catching this show and missed that one, I would uh, strongly recommend that you go back to listen to last week's show so that you can learn the uh, things to do should you be on biotin and need to have certain uh, pituitary function tests or other tests as biotin can interfere with those particular laboratory studies that your physician may be ordering. Well, it's been a busy week for me. I think I've seen 47 patients so far this week and I've probably accessed another hundred charts so the, the practice of medicine can be very arduous at times and filled with all sorts of interesting requests and things to do, but I love my work. It's, it's, it's fascinating and it's fun and it's certainly uh, enjoyable to reflect on the differences that we can make in people's lives that are hopefully mostly positive, uh, uh, restoring them to good health. We do encounter a number of different situations, some of them frustrating, some of them interesting and rather curious. Uh, and I see things on the internet practically on a daily basis that uh, cause me to think about the practice of medicine and uh, the physician's responsibilities and patient responsibilities as well. And I want to start by commenting on uh, something that we've encountered three times this week in our practice. And that was uh, basically related to growth hormone prescriptions. Um, we had three instances where the specialty pharmacies who are responsible for helping to get the approval for growth hormone and ultimately shipping growth hormone to the patient had been trying for days to reach patients to arrange for a scheduled shipment. As you know, growth hormone is a controlled substance, so it's shipped when someone is available to receive it. And in three separate occasions, those patients weren't responding to phone calls or multiple attempts to try to reach them. Uh, and that's it just creates a lot of extra work for uh, our offices and the specialty pharmacy and everybody down the line uh, and raises a concern about a growth hormone shipment that's designated for a patient that may never make it there. It's probably going to be considered uh, wastage if, uh, if it's not ever shipped. And it got me to thinking about some of the challenges we have with growth hormone uh, prescriptions for patients with growth hormone deficiency all the way from the time we prescribe the drug and the difficulties we can have uh, proving the patient has deficiency to an insurance company, which is really trying to not 
get the drug, uh, the drug out to patients. They prefer not to spend the money. Uh, but also the authorization process and the, uh, the pharmaceutical company issues, the specialty pharmacy issues. Uh, but uh, as far as the burden on the patient, it's difficult as well because you have to sit there and wait all this time. You communicate with the office waiting to hear what the status of the prescription is. Uh, and many times it's out of our control whether it takes two weeks or two months to get that medication to you. <clears throat> Some patients don't come back for their follow-up visits. We've seen people who've been on growth hormone for six to 12 months before they uh, need a refill. And then we hear that they uh, need the refill. They, we check the chart. They haven't had their follow-up, nor have they had an IGF-1 level. And certainly the responsibility on the patient is to make sure that you adhere to our recommendations for follow-up and also to get your IGF-1 level eight weeks after starting and eight weeks after dose changes so that we can ensure that the dose of the medication is correct. Um, I also think it's a patient responsibility to be available and be present and respond to the office of the pharmacy or the specialty pharmacy's uh, attempts to try to contact you to get the drug uh, so that uh, there's no wastage there and things can happen on a timely fashion. Um, we put a lot of effort into uh, some of these uh, specialty drugs that we use in endocrinology, whether it be for growth hormone deficiency or acromegaly or Cushing's, uh, and the workload burden is tremendous and great, and we certainly try to do our best to honor our commitments to patients. Um, we don't often see patients honoring their commitment to themselves by ensuring that all of this takes uh, uh less time and intervention as is possible. So as you go forward with your health care, just be mindful of the fact that we do have uh, burdens on our shoulders, but the patient has a burden on his or her shoulders as well to take the medication, to comply with treatment, to comply with follow-up, comply with testing to assess dose efficacy, et cetera. Uh, so that was one of the things on my mind this week several times. <coughs> and... Um, Hopefully it can all work together. I know there are excuses and reasons, and hopefully there's a good reason that these folks couldn't be contacted. Maybe they're somewhere enjoying a great vacation. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, it was odd to have three situations this week alone where that was the problem. Shifting gears a bit, I've been saying for weeks that there's another COVID surge on the way, and that surge is definitely... Uh, hit the Bay Area fairly strongly. Um, but I think we're seeing this surge everywhere uh, at the moment. And I want to remind you all to be careful. Uh, I have seen so many people who've been double vaccinated and double boosted getting COVID and feeling pretty sick and down. Most of them managed at home, a couple of hospitalizations as a result, even despite uh, uh, four uh, vaccinations so far. So just be aware of that fact. Uh, in my practice alone, I have seven new diagnoses of COVID this week for patients that I've seen by telemedicine or who've, or who've called in saying that they have uh, tested positive and wanted to know about adjusting their steroid dosing. And that reminds me to tell you all that if you have a fever over 101.5 or 101, even if you want to use a lower number, you should be taking extra dexamethasone or whatever replacement steroid you're taking probably tripling the dose. Uh, for the past six months or so, I've been asking all patients with a positive COVID infection or test to go ahead and double their dose, then triple if they have that fever. 
And the, the duration of therapy is usually four to seven days to, to increase the dose above the usual baseline dosage. Uh, just be mindful of the fact that there is a surge and you should probably mask up uh, if you're out in public. Uh, you should probably avoid group functions. I heard of one conference where several people have been infected. Another conference where I think it was 20 to 30 of 52 people who attended became infected. So it's just as ever present as, as it was back when we started worrying about this three years ago, and it's still very infectious. So uh, keep it, keep that in mind as you conduct your life and uh, uh, don't take unnecessary risks because it is a bit of rolling the dice uh, as to whether or not you'll get sick or whether you'll have the immune type that's not going to be able to fight this thing and lead for you to sort of get sick because of the consequences of your immune system reacting to this virus. So the public service announcement there is just to understand that uh, we're still in the midst of this thing and there is potential to get sick, although fewer hospitalizations uh, still, no one wants to be sick and miss works. It does have an important effect on your life still. And remember, there are people who um, are at a higher risk. And if, if you get sick and survive it, you might uh, infect someone who may not do very well. So uh, let's uh, do the right thing towards our fellow humankind as well. So I saw some interesting patients this week that are worthy of attention. One patient today was referred for uh, assessment of pituitary functions in an empty cella, and her cella was very enlarged. Her pituitary volume was probably about 20% of normal, but her pituitary functions were normal. Sometimes we think of uh, this as being a congenital defect. Empty cella, if you look back at some of our past uh, posts, can be primary in nature that you're born with due to an incompetent diaphragm cella or the ceiling over the pituitary, which has a large hole and allows spinal fluid pressure to exert its effects on the pituitary and flatten that out and expand the cella. Sometimes those people don't have an expanded cella. And then it can be secondary due to some other disease process like a pituitary tumor, lymphocytic hypophysitis, sarcoidosis, or whatever. Uh, and some of these patients with pituitary tumors have infarction of their tumor. And then you see an empty cella at a later stage. And we never really know what's going on in those patients. When they have normal pituitary functions, we usually think it's a primary empty cella. If they have abnormal functions, we think maybe they had a tumor beforehand or um, a, uh, uh, an inflammatory process. Uh, in, the, in the patient today, interestingly, the patient's mother had uh, seen us for pituitary surgery for a pituitary adenoma. So it raised the possibility that at some point this woman may have had a pituitary tumor that infarcted and resolved and left her with an enlarged partially empty cella. Fortunately, her pituitary function was normal and I didn't see any evidence of pituitary tumor residual. So we'll follow her over time without specific treatment at this time. Um, the other patient that was sort of the opposite of that was a, a woman referred with an MRI where they said the patient had pituitary hyperplasia. It was a young woman, and it's not unusual to see an enlarged pituitary gland in people who have uh, uh, a younger age and are menstruating for a few years, maybe up to 10 years or so, and then it gets better in the 20s or 30s. Or in a menopausal woman who has LH and FSH hyperplasia after 
menopause or a patient with hypothyroidism that's not been treated appropriately. This is primary hypothyroidism, not central. Uh, all these things can cause the pituitary enlarge, but usually when you see a young woman, as this was the case, who has a, a diagnosis of pituitary hyperplasia, the most common reason for that would be simply uh, what we call physiologic hypertrophy related to age. And it's, again, usually in young women who are menstruating uh, regularly. So uh, when I saw the reports and all that, that's what I expected to see. However, when I saw the MRI, the patient actually had something else going on. She had a very shallow cella in contrast to the first one. It had a very enlarged cella. This was a very tiny cella. It was not really very big at all, probably half the volume of a normal-sized cella. And the pituitary gland was humped up above the cella in the line that we expect it to be into the supracellar cistern. If you measured the pituitary, it was normal-sized gland. It was seven millimeters. So the pituitary was not hyperplastic at all. It was just sitting higher than it should have been, uh, largely because of the... Um, size of the cella was very narrow. And the analogy I used to explain this was that if you imagine taking a short glass and filling it with a potato that basically fills up most of the volume of the glass, that would be the setting of the normal cella with the pituitary occupying maybe, occupying maybe 90% of the cella, but sort of conforming to the inside of the glass. That's the normal situation. In this setting, if you took a smaller glass that was not as deep, and put the potato in there, the potato's gonna sort of come up above the rim of the glass and look cupped over and be too big for the glass, so to speak, even though the potato is the same size as a normal sized potato. So that sort of explained the appearance of the pituitary in this patient whose pituitary functions were normal as well. And it occurred to me to, to mention it today because there are variations in normal anatomy. Some people have a big cella, some people have a small one. Some people have a big one due to disease process. Some people have a small one that's normal. Other people have a small one due to the fact that the pituitary is underdeveloped because they have uh, uh, deficiencies in some of the genes uh, that uh, lead to pituitary development, and they can have partial hypopituitarism in that setting as well. So some of these uh, anatomic variations are clinically important and uh, it's an example as to why, even though these patients might not be exciting to most endocrinologists, they are to me because I can educate people and help them understand their MRI findings and more importantly, uh, help them understand that uh, they don't need any attention or surgery and should stay away from neurosurgeons unless uh, a qualified pituitary expert recommends that they consider surgery for one reason or another. Uh, we see things like this uh, throughout the entire body. There are lots of different variations. Some people, for example, are born with just half of a thyroid gland. Some blood vessels in patients are uh, on different courses than they're supposed to be. Every now and then, very rarely, you see a patient whose organs are all on the other side or the other. And this is just because sometimes there are genes controlling embryology that uh, tend to have uh, an anomaly, uh, meaning a mutation that lead to changes in development. And yet people are nearly normal, just different. And this is part of the uh, human variation and human bi variation in biology that makes each one of us different than our own person. And uh, I just keep this in mind that you may have a finding on MRI, go see a physician, they say everything's normal. And, that, and that's, that's good when that's the case. It's very reassuring to see that uh, people actually don't have a problem in some uh, situations. Um,
I think the um, next topic I would like to review are just based on a couple of things that I've seen posted on Facebook. Uh, one of them was this morning, there was a post about gadolinium toxicity, and it was an article that sort of sounded the alarm, if you will, uh, that uh, gadolinium can be toxic to the human body. It is a heavy metal. It is chelated, and when we do MRIs, it's given in a form that shouldn't cause many problems. The facts of the matter are that gadolinium uh, can be seen in tissues after several MRI studies. Some have said maybe after four studies, you might see accumulation in tissue. Uh, there's been no evidence that that has any harmful effects whatsoever. Uh, it is a heavy metal. I don't know of any way to get it out of your system uh, that's been scientifically proved. And I don't, I'm not aware of any studies that suggest that you should try to get it out of your system either. Um, the, the patients who get in a problem with gadolinium are those with renal failure, and this is why we have to do creatinine levels in patients before they have MRI. It's totally defensive medicine, but it's because we really want to be careful with our patients and not subject those people with significant kidney failure to gadolinium contrast. And those patients can develop an unusual skin disease. It's not like a rash or anything. It's actually the collagen, I think, as I recall, starts coming out of the skin and creating these very odd lesions. Uh, that are distinctive on biopsy. And it reminds me of a disorder called reactive uh, perforating collagenosis. Um, I'm not sure if it's the same thing, but it's similar uh, in uh, condition to the to that disorder where people get these skin problems with uh, gadolinium in response to administration if they have renal failure. I've... Uh, I remember being present at the very first MRI that was performed in an institution when I was training in internal medicine in 1988. Uh, and then, of course, in 1990, I started my uh, fellowship and focused on pituitary disease. And over the past 32 years, uh, certainly over the past maybe 28 of those years, I have probably seen thousands of MRIs every year uh, just because of the sheer number of patients that I see, both new and return. Uh, and um, I can't think, think of a single person who's had an adverse reaction to gadolinium. And many of my patients have had MRIs every year for 10 or 15 years, and no one's had a problem. So while I think it's important to be aware of the potential problems with gadolinium, I'm not seeing those problems. And I just want to caution people against reading uh, these alarms and these articles and then altering your health care because of a fear or a concern over something that may really not be significant or relative to your health care. Because in many cases, it might be more dangerous to not get a follow-up MRI that you need to allow early diagnosis and treatment, say, of a pituitary tumor recurrence or progression of disease or what have you. So Arm yourself with information, but be realistic about it, and uh, let's not respond to uh, almost faddest uh, concerns, because sometimes these uh, issues and concerns are more fad than fact. Uh, so be careful out there with what you read online and verify everything that you read before you act on it or alter your course of uh, therapy, and, and most importantly, discuss these issues with your primary physician before you react to those. Um, another thing that I saw online uh, this morning in one or maybe two of the patient groups, <clears throat> one pituitary, one meningioma, was the question about um, mold, toxic mold. So there was this uh, 
question about uh, someone, let's just say the relation between toxic mold exposure and development of tumors, there's no known association. There's no known risk for that. In this era, we would know that if that were the case. But it's curious to me how many of us were exposed to mold at some point in their lives. Um, I remember my first workplace at Emory University. I thought it was a sick building because every time I got to work, I could smell the mold. And by the end of the day, I had a lot of coughing and sneezing and things like that. So you may live in a humid climate. You're going to be exposed to mold. You may have a water leak in your house. The same thing's going to happen. We're all exposed to it. You have to remember that pituitary tumors occur in one in five to one in four people. Uh, and it's not unusual that of the 18 per 100,000 who are diagnosed with pituitary disease, that some of those people are going to have been exposed to toxic mold, but that in no way applies a causal effect. Uh, and it's sort of not appropriate to assume that that's why you have your pituitary disease. Uh, I, I've learned that the, the most common reason we get pituitary tumors is we're human. And the way the human body works, you're going to have a defect in a cell that's going to change its cell cycle and lead to abnormal replication and development of a tumor process. Um, and there are genetics that control that. We don't know if there are environmental factors or not that control that. Uh, but uh, certainly, uh, we wouldn't think of toxic mold exposure to be on the list. And if it were, we would have known that by now in today's society. It's it, To me, I was seeing another example of um, something posted that people respond to, and then they incorporate that this must be really what's going on or the the truth of the matter. And I think it's uh, dangerous to make those assumptions as well, because people can get themselves worked up about it and make allegations and things of that nature. I liken it to the whole uh, issue of um, the weed killer roundup uh, usage. And, you know, you see these attorneys advertising online about uh, if you've been exposed to this uh, or ever used this product and have had lymphoma, you may be entitled to compensation. These are class action lawsuits where you know, the patient's going to get very little and the law firm's going to get a ton of money for that. And there's no real association uh, other than I know most, most people with lymphoma probably used Roundup at some point. And you can't say that Roundup is what caused the, the, the uh, lymphomas in these particular patients. But uh, I digress there. It just reminded me of the same thing. So once again, uh, in the same vein, be careful what you, uh, what you read on the internet and how you incorporate it into your life and always verify and do the research and see what the true science holds uh, uh, before you make those assumptions that uh, uh, you're, you're affected by this particular condition and that was the cause of your pituitary tumor. I saw an interesting patient this week that uh, is uh, worthy of mention for those of you who have Cushing's or have an interest in Cushing's. And this is a patient who has referred to me with the possibility of adrenal Cushing's and she had a tumor on her uh, left adrenal gland. And when I looked at the CT scan, there was a definite benign adenoma on the left. Uh, but when I noticed the right, her entire right gland was also enlarged, suggesting to me that she more likely than not had bilateral adrenal hyperplasia, which itself can be a cause of adrenal Cushing's. But interesting, the laboratory data showed that her urine cortisol levels were slightly elevated. She failed the dexamethasone suppression test, which is used to assess for uh, Cushing's. Her salary cortisol levels at nighttime were very high, which is another test that suggests Cushing's. 
and um, on exam, her uh, DHA sulfate was high normal, which suggests against adrenal disease, and her ACTH was about 37, which is definitely inappropriately normal in the setting of having high cortisol. Uh, and you would not see that in adrenal disease. You would see a low ACTH and a low uh, DHA sulfate, but hers were normal and high, high, really high normal for both. And on MRI, she ended up having a four millimeter pituitary adenoma. So this is a classic case of pituitary cushions, not adrenal disease in a patient who simply needs her pituitary uh, surgery to uh, take care of this lesion rather than adrenal surgery to take care of the adrenal problems. Uh, and, and I liked seeing this lady. She's a very nice woman, but uh, it's sort of a nice, good uh, endocrine pathophysiology uh the case, if you will, to to understand the proper workup and interpretation of test results based on all of the information available. And to me, it was a good case that uh, I think is uh, justification for pituitary centers of excellence and physicians who see enough patients with these disorders to be able to uh, make the right decisions about further diagnostic testing, interpretation of those tests, and then how to act on and decide what to do based on the results of those particular tests. Uh, it's one of the things I like about my, my job is that endocrine pathophysiology, especially pituitary disease, makes a lot of sense if you can think in a mechanistic way uh, and look for subtle physical clues and, and historical clues that would point you one way or another when there are several distinct possibilities on how to proceed and uh, further evaluation and uh, uh, management of patients with some of these rare and unusual disorders. So let's take a break. Uh, I'll be back shortly uh, with more. Um... You are listening to Live Talk. We'll be right back. One of the uh, major issues related to COVID in the practice of medicine is that a lot of us have been practicing telemedicine with our patients, and a lot of you have uh, accomplished telemedicine visits with your physicians. Uh, and in lieu of going into the office and being exposed to other patients, some of whom may have COVID, or going to the to a major hospital center where certainly there are patients being treated for COVID and staff are out sick with COVID, et cetera. So uh, telemedicine actually, I think, decreases risk of uh, COVID infection. The other thing is it also is uh, much more convenient for patients. I, I have people who live in California, but seven to eight hours drive away from our institution. 
who used to come in for visits and they would take a day off of work. They would drive in, they would stay the night, they would have a visit the next morning, uh, maybe along with an MRI uh, and, uh, and then have a visit and uh, go uh, back to their hometown. They've missed two days of work, a night in a hotel, uh, $40 to $100 worth of gasoline for a round trip, uh, had to deal with childcare, et cetera, et cetera, all for a 15 to 20 minute follow-up visit, which is kind of preposterous. And telemedicine has enabled us to do those things from the comfort of one's home. Some people call us from their car outside their work or in their workplace. Um, and, uh, and I've certainly done telemedicine with people taking care of their kids at the same time of the visit. So it's, it's enabled, uh, I think a different type of access to healthcare uh, than what we had before. Uh, prior to the pandemic, we were doing about 15% of our visits via telemedicine. And uh, since the pandemic, it, well, this October will be two years since I've seen a patient in the clinic. Everything has been telemedicine. Some of the patients who didn't used to come for the visits because they had to travel a distance are now able to get telemedicine because they go to their local labs for their blood testing and then or to a Quest Lab or LabCorp, uh, and then they go to their local institution for a dedicated MRI, the pituitary. We look at all this data and have a telemedicine visit, and uh, compliance with follow-up has been facilitated. Di earlier diagnosis of recurrent disease has been facilitated as well. And there are just so many positive things because of result of telemedicine. I think it's uh, led to, in many ways, better medical care and certainly in the field of pituitary disorders, we do a lot of visual inspection. Either a patient looks like they're acromegalic cushing on, on two little steroids, hypothyroid, or what have you. And of course, we have our laboratory testing to back up whatever the symptoms and signs are, are pointing to uh, when we sort of assess hormone replacement and, and the patient's sense of well-being. Just at about the time of uh, COVID was getting bad, uh, the... Uh, president's office uh, changed things where we could do telemedicine across state lines. And uh, this was great because our patients who do live out of state were now afforded the opportunity to have their visits while ha without having to travel by plane and, and hotel expenses, etc. cetera. Uh, now we're starting to see a shift, despite this surge, a shift to a cancellation of that policy and probably about 30 of the 52 states have reversed their policy where they don't want physicians to practice medicine on patients who live out of the state where the physician practices. Um, it's very curious. Uh, and the, the interesting thing is, is I could have a patient living in Nevada, which is a neighboring state, and you can get there in about three and a half hours drive, maybe four hours to some of the, uh, to Reno, where the, uh, it's a fairly sizable town where a lot of our patients come from. Um, I could do a telephone call with them, evaluate their labs, look at their MRI. Um, they're in Reno, I'm in California. Uh, I can change their medications, advise new prescriptions, order labs for six to eight weeks later, and, uh, and all of that, and that's totally fine. But if I do a visit with them by telemedicine, under the new sort of laws that we've reverted to, that's like practicing medicine in Nevada without a license uh, because it depends on where the patient is at the time of the visit. That same patient in Nevada can come to my office and it's considered practicing medicine in California because that's where the, the patient is. 
I think it's nonsense, and hopefully we'll, this will change. I, I believe that this exists largely because states want to regulate the practitioners who are providing care to its own citizens. So I totally get that and understand that. You know, Nevada or whatever other state my patient might reside in has the the right to be able to know whether a physician uh, seeing that patient, billing that patient has any uh, restrictions on their license or has their license suspended or what have you. Uh, what we what we need to do, though, is we need to change this nationally. We need to be able to uh, have a license to practice medicine that, uh, you know, if you're certified in California, you're grandfathered to other states. Um, and the information about the practitioners in California is shared with all the other states and vice versa, so that there's a large data bank where um, it, you can have the opportunity to do that without having to obtain additional uh, license to practice. I, I spoke with a physician earlier today who has a license to practice in five states just so that that individual can see patients of, of hers who lives in all those different states. And um, that can be cost prohibitive because it's about a thousand to $2,000 every two years for a state that you have a license in. And, um, I'm not sure it's any different. Uh, I'm not sure that it helps or improves care whatsoever for that to be the case. Um, what, I, what I'm hoping for in the future is that we'll be able to do telemedicine across state lines more widely and not have this contraction of the ability to do so, because I think that all citizens deserve the opportunity to have care from the best physician at their disposal if you will. And many people live in small rural communities where there's no pituitary center. And it makes sense that they have the opportunity to reach out to those of us that are at tertiary medical centers and spend our lives focusing on pituitary disease versus seeing an endocrinologist who spends most of his or her life seeing patients with diabetes and has very little experience with pituitary disorders. I think that uh, our goal in society is to improve health care and uh, maintaining the opportunity to do telemedicine across state lines is one of those ways of doing so. I'm reminded about what one of my neighbors had said. He's a nuclear physicist, and we were talking about this whole issue in particular, this one of telemedicine and, uh, and other changes in our lives as, that have happened as a result of the pandemic. And while there are negative things and uh, uh, things that we want to get back to normal for. There are certain positive things as well. And uh, as he as he pointed out, we had to probably jump ahead 15 years in our approaches to the workplace, the work environment, uh, access to healthcare, information technology, et cetera, to be able to have some semblance of forward progress with this pandemic. And he feels like one of the worst things we can do is try to revert back to where we were three years ago, rather than taking advantage of this leap forward and new opportunities and new ways of doing things that technology really enabled us to do. Um, and, uh, and I think he's right. I think that reverting back to the old way uh, with regards to telemedicine and state lines and licensure is probably not the wisest thing to do. So uh, I know there's some movements underfoot by several institutions to try to maintain this ability to see people, especially if they are follow-up visits. But hopefully in the future, we can have a situation where people who live in different states can have access 
to healthcare providers without having to travel. Certainly you have access to us now if you want to travel, but uh, the, the prices of airfare are just outrageous in this day and age. I was, I was looking at a, a flights to go back and visit my folks in East Tennessee and the the ticket that I wanted to purchase would have been two thousand um, dollars just from San Francisco to East Tennessee. Uh, for the t- cheapest ticket I found was fifteen hundred dollars for the for the time that I wanted to go. Um, at the same time, you could get a ticket to Germany or Italy for about a thousand dollars. It makes no sense whatsoever to me. Um, I'm one of those uh, risk averse people when it comes to COVID. I haven't had it. I don't want to get it. So I decided. Best not to travel now anyways, uh, just because of the surge that's going on and the fact that the mask mandates for airlines have have been lifted and I'm not interested in the claustrophobia of wearing a mask for about six to seven hours of flight and a couple hours in airports as well. So I chose not to to do that travel. Uh, At any rate, uh, this whole um, telemedicine thing across state lines is an evolving issue. If you have physicians that practice out of state where you live and you take advantage of telemedicine, I would urge you to contact your local representatives and senators. And uh, uh, these would be the state senators and state representatives, and, and maybe even those that, uh, that go to Washington as well, and share your opinions with them and ask them to support uh, the uh, widespread use of telemedicine across state lines, because I think this is going to have to come from patients and not necessarily providers. So do your part to see if you can keep us from reverting to what uh, what might have been a, an advance 15 years ahead in the way we practice medicine and, and, and achieve our health care. So... Moving on to the next topic, uh, at Pituitary World News, Jorge Fascinetti and I, uh, I guess we've been in this for about six or seven years now, and we're pleased with the opportunities that we have to be able to make a difference and to help uh, educate people uh, and to improve knowledge and awareness, uh, not only of, of patients affected by pituitary disorders, but their families. And we also hear that healthcare providers are using our resources and sending patients there to learn about uh, steroid dose adjustments for adrenal insufficiency, uh, growth hormone replacement, medical therapies for acromegaly and Cushing's, et cetera. So we're, we're excited uh, with the uh, things that we've chosen to do. We focused a lot on advocacy and uh, sort of a, a news magazine approach to try to keep you updated with uh, uh, not only advances, but also ideas and thoughts. Um, we, we want to know what else we can do for you. We're going to continue in this vein. We're going to continue uh, the radio show because it's fun and we think it's another way to require ourselves to put something out there every week uh, for your uh, consideration. Um, and uh, But we, we want to hear from you uh, about what we can do to make Pituitary World News uh, a more useful um uh, platform for, for you, uh, whether you're a family member, a patient, or a physician. Uh, and uh, we'd also like to ask you to let us know what you can do for us. How, how can you help? How can you contribute uh, information-wise? Maybe you have an interesting uh, take or an interesting story that would be educational to other people. We want to interview you. We want to find out what it's been like for you to, to navigate the healthcare system and to have pituitary disease. Uh, and uh, to to share your story with others. I tend to find as a physician that every single patient I see has a fascinating story. 
uh, whether it be the thousandth patient I've seen with a Rathke cyst or the first patient I've seen with a very odd disease process. Uh, and I think that other patients are also interested in the journey that other people have taken. And it helps to understand that you're not the only one rowing the, the proverbial canoe down the river. So I think it's important to share this information. And, uh, uh, and some of you may be able to help in other ways uh, with uh, uh, information technology or uh, an, an interest in uh, fundraising or what have you. But let us know what we can do for you and what you can do for us because we want to hear uh, about your strengths and the things that you feel like you can bring to the pituitary community uh, as a whole. <clears throat> I think that's about it for my musings today. Uh, it's been uh, great to have the opportunity to chat. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be announcing future podcasts within the next week or so. Uh, we'd love to have your participation. We want to have, we know a lot of people are listening to these things uh uh, as a uh, at a later date when we post them as podcasts, but we really want this to be a live talk program where we have uh, a guest or a speaker, however you want to call it, someone that we interview uh, and, and ask questions of and someone that you can ask questions of as well and uh, share your stories. We want it to really become a talk radio show where it's not just us delivering content, but you're participating in the uh, information. Uh, it makes it more exciting and perhaps more engaging. So we'll be talking more about that later as we come up with ideas to engage our audience. But if any of you have ideas on the things that we can do uh, to promote uh, and uh, uh, provide an access for, for those of you out there who are listening to participate in this show, please uh, give us your thoughts. We're even wondering if that's possible. Uh, Jorge was listening into a podcast or a radio show that turned into a podcast I had done recently and said he couldn't find a button to call in. So maybe that's the, the issue. If so, you can maybe help provide us with feedback so that we can know that uh, maybe you've tried to gain access to the show, but you couldn't. And that will help us understand how to work with uh, Riverside FM to make our show more accessible to our listeners. At any rate, that's all I have for uh, this week. And I look forward to uh, uh, chatting with you folks uh, next week. Uh, have a wonderful uh, week. Uh, and until then, uh, Lewis Blevins signing off from uh, Live Talk with Pituitary World News. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.